All right, go ahead and take out your Bibles, something that you can uh, take notes with this morning. Thanks, worship team. So awesome. My goodness. Uh, one other thing I want to let you know about, make sure you hear about before we get going here. We got baptisms coming up on March 10th. That's a Wednesday night. It's one of our Lent worship nights. So if you have not been baptized and you are a follower of Jesus, go to antiochindy.com info and you can sign up. Baptism is an amazing invitation to be obedient to the words of Jesus, part of turning our lives to him. And every week we take communion together and we, we always talk about how it's the spiritual mystery of partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus. The Bible tells us that baptism is, is similar and that it, there's this spiritual mystery that it, it's just water, but at the same time, it is the grave and it is resurrection. And if you have not been baptized, uh, make sure that you are signing up to do that March 10th coming up. AntiochIndy.com slash info. So if you know somebody who hasn't been baptized, give them the elbow. Make sure they're signing up. All right, you got your Bibles and notes out? Good deal. All right, we're going to start off reading, um, reading the Word of God. So why don't you go ahead and stand up. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. Shocker, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. We're going to read a couple verses there, and then we're going to jump into chapter 2 and read some verses there. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Flip over to chapter 2, verse 5. We're going to read a chunk here. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down to verse 15 so we can skip all the hard words I tried reading last week. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper for him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. 
And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and take a seat. We are continuing our course or series, Biblical Formation, and we are in section two, Humanity. So as you're getting your notes out, make sure you're labeling your notes correctly, you know. We got to get it right with all these labels flying around. Biblical Formation, section two, discussing humanity. Last week was part one of humanity, and we were, uh, we were introduced to humanity, hence the section, Right? This week, we are continuing in this part on humanity. Last week, introduced to humanity. This week, we are introduced to relationship, human relationships. So we are uh, doing biblical formation, humanity, and this week's message is titled, Let's Talk About You. Let's talk about you. Tap your neighbor and tell them that means you. Let's talk about you. I hope you got your notes because we're going we're gonna to study today. You guys ready for that? We're going we're gonna to cover a lot of ground. We got a lot to talk about, and I'm praying that we get through it all. Uh, our text this morning, it's got a lot in there. I don't know if you noticed that we were reading that. There's a lot of things reading there. As I was reading it, I'm like about 12 or 13 different times. I'm like, hold on, hold on. I got questions here. Hold on. There's a lot going on in our text this morning. So, I'm going to try to get us focused on just some of the things that we're going to try to zero in on today and talk about as we discuss relationships, human relationships. In, Genesis, in the Genesis 1 portion of our text this morning, we picked up on the final day of creation, and God says to the heavenly host, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So just as God has created heavenly imagers that we talked about a few weeks ago to partner with him in the administration of his kingdom in the heavens, God now announces his intention to create human imagers to partner with him in his administration of his kingdom on the earth. He announces that's what he wants to do, so that's what he does. That's what he does. And we read, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That kind of covers where we were last week. Am I right? And God saw that all he had made, he, he saw all that he made, and behold, it was very good. And we jump to Genesis chapter 2, picks up the creation of humanity, tells us more of the story here, gives us some more detail as to what went on as God was creating humanity. As we read it, and as we read Genesis 2, as we think about Genesis 2 and continue to talk about it, I think it's going to be helpful to understand that the word that is translated man and Adam, it's the same word. It's, Adam is actually a Hebrew word in itself. It's not just a name. It means, it means man. It means human. So as we're reading and you think about Adam, you can think also whenever you see that word, you can think man, you can think human. When you see the word man, you can think human, Adam. You see how it all kind of works together. They kind of get interchanged here, and you can be thinking all of those things whenever you come across these words. So we meet Adam, we meet human, we meet the human that God creates. There, there was no human to work the ground that God had made, so God forms the human, the singular human, and breathes breath into the lungs of the human. And then we read the Lord plants the Garden of Eden, and then he plants the human in the Garden of Eden, which 
would make sense. It would make sense that if we're talking about, if, if God's telling us that he's creating us to be in his image, to partner with him in what he's doing, that it would make sense that after he makes human, he would put human in Eden, which we have discussed is the overlap of the heavens and the earth, the place of unity where God is administrating his kingdom in the heavens and in the earth. It would make sense that God would put human there. These are the unions we've been talking about in creation that God intended. The, the union of the heavens and earth, the union of God and humanity. So we have the garden, we have the man in the garden, and God tells the man, work the garden. And he tells them that you can enjoy any part of this garden, just stay away from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. So we meet our human, we meet, we meet Adam, we meet man, we meet the garden of Eden, and, and the human has all of this that we've talked about. Has all of this. I mean, especially as we're talking about Eden, the way the Bible talks about it, it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, how what this place was like. I mean, just the, the glory of it all. He's got the presence of God. He's, he, this human has the Garden of Eden. He can eat anything. I mean, praise the Lord. <laughs> he's, got, he's got all of this, and yet the Lord saw that something wasn't good. Something was not good about this picture, and it was not good that this human should be alone. So God sets out as our Bible says, to make a helper fit for him. Make a helper fit for him. So as we dive into this, we're going to be spending a lot of time here in this phrase. We're going to get into some language stuff here. So if that's your thing, great. If it's not your thing, here we are. So, sorry. We need to get into some language stuff, so, so I'd encourage you to stick with me and write some things down. Because we have a pretty simple phrase here in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Pretty, pretty simple English phrase here. And uh, it's good. It's, it's great. The Bible does say that. And it would also be helpful, I think, for us to get some context back, back to some original languages so that we can kind of understand the whole of what it's saying in this one little simple phrase. And also, as we come to these, uh, specifically this verse and this phrase, um, we're going to dive into some of the language here. You, you also may be coming to this with some preconceptions about what this verse is about or not about, what it says or doesn't say, uh, especially specifically about men and women and how that all works out. And there's a lot to be said here about um, a lot of things. We're going to get into that in a couple of weeks, but I want to encourage us to just set down some preconceptions, set those down for now for this message, and then maybe after the message, go back to the pile of preconceptions and pick up whatever you think is worth picking back up again. Okay, so we're going to zoom out. We're going to be focusing on relationships as a whole, not just on uh, male and female as we do this. So then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. I will make the human a helper fit for the human. So a helper. This, this word helper is, a, is a, in the Hebrew that, the, that Genesis was originally written in. It's a Hebrew word, azer. I'm going to put it up on the screen for you to write it down so you can impress somebody this week with your Hebrew language. Azer. Azer is how you pronounce it. Azer, uh, help, helper, a, a helper. So this, this word, azer, occurs 21 times in the Hebrew Old Testament. Two of the 21 times appear right here in these couple of verses, in verse 18 and then verse 20. 
So this word azer is two times right there. So that leaves 19 more times for this to be used in the Old Testament. One of those 19 times, only one of those times is azer used in a name. And that is in Exodus 18, verse 20. And then the, um, sorry, it's, it's in 1820. And the name, the name is Eliezer. So you can hear Azer in it, right? So just add Eli on the front of it. And then you got Azer, Eliezer. And the other, nine, the other 18 times that it's used, it's used in the Psalms or the prophets. And it's used to talk specifically about crying out for, hoping for, needing, or receiving help. But not just any help, specifically the help of God. So it's all through the Psalms. Most of those other 18 times it's in the Psalms and a couple other times it's in the prophets. And it's, if you read through these things, it's, it's people crying out, not just, oh, I need help. It's no, God, I need your help. I need the help of God. This word, azer, is a word that specifically describes not just help, but specifically the help that comes from God. So I hope this gives context to what kind of help we're talking about. Sometimes we can read, God says, I'm going to make the human a helper. And, and for some reason, that can have a, a, a weakness attached to it. But I don't know that there's anything weak about God's help. In Exodus 18.4, the verse where uh, this is used in a name, I'm thankful because the verse actually tells us what Eliezer means and why he was named Eliezer. He's, a, he's one of the sons of Moses. And so you got to picture where Moses is at this point. Moses has lived his life. Uh, we talked about the burning bush at the beginning of the year. Then he goes through Egypt and the plagues and bringing people out of Egypt and the Red Sea. And the, we got a lot going on in Moses' life, right? So by this point, he has two sons. And one of his sons, he names Eliezer. And the Bible tells us the reason that his name was Eliezer says this in Exodus 18. It says that his name means the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. What a name. What a name. There's a lot packed into Eliezer. The God of my father was my help and my deliverer from the sword of Pharaoh. My God does what only my God can do. I need what only my God can do. I don't just need help. I need the help of God in my life. That's what Azer is talking about. So that's where we get our English. I will make him a helper. I, I, will, I will make him Azer. I will make for him an Azer. Now let's talk about this phrase, fit for him. Azer, an Azer, or however we would say that when we combine English and Hebrew. We'll just do it this way. An Ezer, an Azer, fit for him. So we got some more language stuff. We doing all right? Okay, so we've talked about the Hebrew. There's this thing called the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's a really big deal. We could talk along about it, but we're not going to. So just, we'll leave it there. So there's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that is ancient as well and also incredibly important. So we've talked about the Hebrew. And when you look at the text in the Hebrew, we are, the sentence, our version of the sentence would kind of 
sort of end with Azer, and, and we're left to interpret Azer and try to put that packed word into English. And so in, if we just look at the, the Hebrew, this phrase could say, God is going to produce his help for the human. Okay, he's going to produce God's help for the human. If you look at your footnote, you, your Bible might actually have a footnote here after uh, four, fit for it. And if you look at that, uh, you'll see that this could also, this, these words fit for could also be translated corresponding to. Somebody give me a nod if you're seeing that in your Bible. It's on page two of mine. No. So fit for could also be translated corresponding to. That, that corresponding to translation comes from the Greek word that is put here when we have the Greek Old Testament. And that Greek word is kata. You can write that down and impress somebody else this week. Not just a Hebrew scholar, you're a Greek scholar. Now we got to work on the English, right? That's a tough one. <laughs> so the, the Greek word here is kata. And it can be translated into a lot of different descriptive words and phrases like this. So fit for, corresponding to. You can see how the, it, there's a similarity there. And, and this could be a lot of different things. We've just listed a few of them here. But if you, if you, if you look up what this can be translated, the list is long. It, it's a descriptive word that's trying to get to all of this idea of, of something that is fit for, something that corresponds to. Um, you could also use the word against or facing. So you almost get the picture of a mirror. Like it's opposite, but it's the same. But it's facing, but it's the same thing. So it's similar, but somehow it corresponds, but it's not exactly the same thing. Uh, you, also, the word natural. So I'm, I'm going to make a, help for, a helper natural for the human. Uh, also, words like exceeding or beyond. So I'm going to fashion my help for him that is beyond him. There's a lot packed into these words. Are you tracking with me? Okay, so you guys are doing great. I'm thankful. Okay, so Genesis 1 and Genesis 2... They've got some overlap here, and they're not meant to be necessarily chronological. So when, in Genesis 2, God says, it's not good for man to be alone, it's not saying that, like, he made all of creation, and then a little bit down the road, he realized, oh, shoot, I've made a mistake. There was something I looked over. That's not chronological in that sense. What, what Genesis 1 gives us the broad scope of everything that went on. And then Genesis 2 kind of zooms in on the human part and gives us a little bit more backstory. Are you tracking with me? So we need both. We got to have both. We got we to pick up what is, what is God telling us in Genesis 1 that's, that, that we need to know? And what is the purpose of some of the detail that God goes back to in Genesis 2? So in Genesis 1, in, in the broad scope, we get the creation of male and female. And then in Genesis 2, here we are with just one human. So you see how we're, we're going back and forth here. So in Genesis 1, God gives, creates human, male and female. He created them, and then he gives them their, their mandate. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, and all of that. Genesis 2, in the backstory of creating male and female. Or Genesis, Genesis 2 is, sorry, the backstory of creating male and female. And at the point of the story we are in, in verse 18, we just have one human. 
So Genesis 1 tells us we know where we're going. We're going towards 2. I mean, look around. All right, I see where we're headed. But Genesis 2, 18, we're just, we're not quite there yet. So we just have one human. And honestly, whether he's specifically a a male human or or mixed or something, people have opinions about that, but I don't think it really matters. What we do know, what we do know, let's focus on what we do know. Come on, somebody, amen. Sometimes in life, let's focus on what we do know. What, what, What we do know is that in Genesis 2, 18, God looks at this human and sees that it is not good for this human to be alone. And it wasn't good because of what we learned in Genesis 1. The reason it's not good that he's alone in Genesis 2 is because of what we know from Genesis 1. See, God had an idea in his mind to make human. That's what we read, Genesis 1:26. God had an idea in his mind. Let us let us make human. Everybody write down origin. Write down the word origin in your notes. God had an idea in his mind to make human. Genesis 1 tells us God had an identity he wanted to give humanity, which was to be his image, is what we talked about last week. Write this down in your notes. Identity. Put identity in your notes. Genesis 1 then tells us that God had a purpose for humanity which was to partner with him and rule with him. And Genesis 1 tells us that part of fulfilling that purpose, part of that fulfilling that calling is to be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. So put down purpose. We have origin, identity, and purpose. That's what Genesis 1 tells us, paints the, paints the picture. This is where God's going. So in Genesis 1, God gives us the human, God gives the human his origin, his identity, and his purpose. And in Genesis 2, as we're going through the process here, the Bible tells us that it's not good for the human to be alone, which means that the human cannot image God or fulfill God's purposes alone. This is why it's not good that he's alone. He can't can't do what I made him to do, be who I called him to be alone. We talked a few weeks ago about... um, Genesis 1, 1 through 3 introduces us as, as, as we're being introduced to God. Remember, we've been talking about how we've, we've got to read the Bible for what it is. Who's the main character of the Bible? It's not, we're, we're in church and this is not a trick question. Who's the main, per, main character of the Bible? Man, way to go. So we're reading this because we're trying to learn about God. So as much as we have to learn about everything else in the Bible, we can't lose sight of the fact that that we're primarily here to learn about God. So Genesis 1, 1 through 3, we discuss the introduction to the Trinity, if you remember that. And now here in Genesis 2, as God's looking at the human and saying, it's not good for the human to be alone, there's, there's a lot to learn about the human in this, but there's also something God's trying to show us about God in this. God's giving us more pointers here in the, in the direction, in this direction of the Trinity. That, that, that in some way, God is only one and he is multiple in himself. And his desire is that he would create humanity in that mysterious image. So the doctrine of the Trinity tells us that God is one and he is complete in himself and he is also multiple in himself. He is one and he is father, 
Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's making this human to be in his image. The human being alone. The human being alone. Adam being alone wasn't just sad for Adam. It was an unsatisfactory imaging of God. This little phrase, I will make a helper fit for him, is God saying a lot of things. And if I could give my best stab at it to summarize what we've covered so far. In this little phrase, I will make him a helper fit for him. What the Lord's trying to communicate is that this lone human is not a satisfactory image of me. So I'm going to step in. And do what only I can do and fashion a more complete image of myself by making a same but opposite natural and corresponding image of me that takes this one human beyond what it could ever be alone and therefore empower all of humanity to image me as my original thought intended so they could fulfill the original purposes I had in mind. There's a lot in this phrase. The Bible is telling us at the beginning, right here at the beginning, that there is something about being human, something about imaging God correctly that cannot happen outside of relationships with other human beings. There is something about being human, something about imaging God correctly that cannot happen outside of relationships with other humans. So far through our biblical formation series, I've been mentioning that God had intended three unions in creation. And I've only covered two so far, and I've had some astute observers asking me about that. The first union we talked about that God intended in creation is the union of the heavens and the earth. The second union that God intended in creation is the union of God and humanity. The third union that God intended in creation was the union of humanity and humanity. He intended humans to be in union with one another. I'd be willing to bet all my Bitcoin, if I had any, that the best things in your life are connected to relationships with other people. And that the most painful things in your life are connected to relationships with other people. So, this is like really exciting to talk about and also really scary. You know, there's nothing like a, nothing like a good relationship. And there's nothing like a bad one. So, if God intended relationships from the beginning so much so that he took an extra chapter of the bible at the very beginning to make the point it's not good that the human is alone so i'm gonna make another human how how do we how do we do this well how do we do this well how do we do friendship well marriage dating engagement siblings 
parent-child relationships, step-parent-child relationships, kids-to-parent relationships. We got a lot of relationships in our life. How do we do this well? The prospect of having healthy relationships that reflect the image of God, if you ask me, sounds really daunting. It sounds really daunting. So if that's how you feel, same. You're not alone. But like we've been talking about so much this year, living in pursuit of what God is calling us to, it may be a fight, but it is a fight worth fighting. So this is where our title for this morning finally comes into play. Let's talk about you. Hooray. <laughs> one, one thing that I've learned that I don't like about reading the Bible is that it seems like whenever I want to complain to God about somebody else, what he wants to do is sit down and tell me, okay, that's great. We can talk about that. But first, let's talk about you. It's really obnoxious and annoying. I see him do it to me when I read the Bible. I see him to do it to people in the Bible when I read the Bible. I mean, you read the Gospels. You read Jesus' life. And it seems like every time somebody tried to come to, some, come to Jesus and talk to him about blaming somebody else, complaining about somebody else, judging somebody else, he just has this attitude of like, okay, maybe you're right. And we can get there. But like, let's talk about you first. Why don't we sit down? And then usually by the time he's done with that conversation, it's like, okay, so who did you want to talk about? And you're like, no, no one. I'm, I'm all right. Jesus had this thing about him. He just, this go-to thing about him. Okay, I know there's a lot to talk about. Let's start with you. Let's start with you. Let's talk about you. So as I aim to help us be biblically formed in the way we view and practice relationships, I can't straighten out everybody in your life for you. But I can talk to you this morning about what the Bible says you are responsible for. I heard somebody say recently, we aren't here to tell the world how to be the world. We are here to let the Bible tell the church how to be the church. So that's what we're going to focus on. I want to give you three things out of Genesis 1 and 2 to help you be biblically formed in how you view and practice relationships. Number one, it is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to be alone. You are never going to find yourself by yourself. And as we talk about repenting from a self-centered worldview and being reformed from a self-centered faith, I want to talk about how this works into this biblical truth that it's not good for you to be alone. A self-centered worldview is selling you promises that yourself can't keep. A self-centered worldview sells you promises that yourself can't keep. Promises like individualism. You just need your world to be about you and to let you be you however you want to be you. That's what you need. That's, that's what your self-centered worldview promises you. That the greatest thing that you can ever be is an individual. The greatest thing you can ever be is individually you. And the best way to do that is to have everybody around you let you be you the way you want to be you. Promises like isolationism. If you want to find yourself, if you really want to find yourself, get alone by yourself and just keep digging. Just keep digging into yourself until you find your deepest self. What you need most is 
yourself to love yourself. What you need most, what you need to pursue most is to fulfill yourself. What you need to aim for most is to realize yourself. Promises that a self-centered worldview is selling you that yourself can't, can't keep. Now, when I talk about this stuff, I want to be just really clear. Like, I'm not mad, and I'm not trying to be self-righteous about anything. I'm just trying to help you and help us by being brutally honest with us in a world that's trying to lie to you about a lot of things. You can't answer your biggest questions by yourself. You can't satisfy your deepest desires by yourself, and you can't fulfill your deepest self by yourself. You can't do it. It's not that like God's saying, you can pull it off, but do it my way. It's like, no, no, that's a dead end road and it's not gonna get you where you're trying to go. You have got to submit yourself to a community of people who loves you and is going after the things of God together. None of us can be who God has made us to be without being sharpened by others, trained by others, shaped by others, corrected by others, submitted to others. Jesus promises us that the one who tries to save himself will lose himself. But the one who gives himself for the sake of Jesus will find himself. To repeat again what I said last week, you will never know who you really are without first knowing him. And part of knowing him is being submitted to his people. It is not good for you to be alone. It is not good for you to be alone. We've got to be committed to that truth on a personal level. We've got to get committed to this. We've got to be committed to risking with each other, initiating with each other, reaching out to each other, opening ourselves up to each other because we are convinced it's not good for me to be alone. Yes, it's scary. Yes, it's hard. It would be easier if everybody else would go first. But you will not find what you are looking for by being alone. A self-centered worldview is selling you promises that yourself can't keep. And a self-centered faith is inviting you to a church that isn't church. A self-centered faith is inviting you to a church that isn't church. What I mean by that is that um, there can be an idea that gets taken way too far. Like you just, you just need all you need. Your, your entire faith just needs to be about you getting alone with God. And Absolutely, you do need to get alone with God. Absolutely. It's one of our five core values as a church, but it is only one of the five. Important note. Remember, it's not good for you to be alone. And anything that encourages you to pull back and isolate and just be part of the me, myself, and I Christian church, where it's just me and my podcasts, or it's just me looking for the church that has everything the way that I want it perfectly all the time. Anything that's given you that is speaking to you out of pain, immaturity, or both. This goes back to the, some of the deconstruction stuff we talked about a few weeks ago. There's a lot of people right now who just want to have their faith with their opinion, with their version of Jesus. But the problem with that is that Jesus is the head of his body. He's not just the head of you. When you gave your life to him and were baptized, you were baptized by his spirit into his body. Not just baptized 
by his spirit into your own faith. You can't be who God has called you to be alone. You can't do what God has called you to do alone. You can't know God the way you want to know him alone. You've got to sign up to put in the work to develop healthy, healthy relationships because you are convinced it is not good for you to be alone. Number two, your role in relationships is to image Azer. Your role in relationships is to image Azer. A self-centered worldview makes relationships about you and a self-centered faith makes church about you. A biblically formed person comes into a relationship and comes into the church looking to make others great. What would a community look like? What would your marriage look like? What would your friendships look like? What would a dating relationship look like? What would your parenting look like if each person was looking most to reflect the help of God in the other person's life? I am here to be for you an image of the help only God can give. Number three, your goal in relationships is to strengthen each other through your differences. Your goal in relationships is to strengthen each other through your differences. Genesis, like I said, talks specifically about male and female. They're opposite but the same. Such a beautiful picture to help us understand this opposite but the same thing. You look at male and female and you see they're opposite, they're the same. Male and female, both equally human and yet somehow only human together. Right? God, God's saying you don't have humanity with just the one. We, we've got to have both. So unique and opposite but at the same time only human together. The world right now is trying to be unified in our differences and it's not working. Trying to be unified in our differences and it's not working. God is calling us to be strengthened by our differences. This nuance is important and I want you to write it down. There's a difference between being unified in our differences and strengthened by our differences. The world's trying to be unified in differences, but God is calling us to be strengthened by our differences. The reason that the nuance matters is that when we try to be unified in our differences, what that means is I have to hold on to my differences to make sure I don't lose what makes me different. If we are here to strengthen each other in our differences, then I can never lose what makes me different because I'm always using what makes me different to make you better. If we're just trying to be unified in our differences, what I have to focus on is what makes me different so that I don't lose it. If, I'm here to be, if we're here to be strengthened in our differences, I can never lose what makes me different because I'm always using it to make you better. I'm using the thing about me that makes me different to make you better. I'm not just worried and hoarding my difference. To what, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. Our differences don't just make us unique individually. They're what make us look more like God collectively. See, we, if we want relationships, if we want healthy relationships, we have to be strengthened in our differences. See, some, some people just, just want to focus on the differences. Let me, let me try to explain this a little bit better. I don't know if I'm making, making it make sense what's in my head here. The, the world's trying to unify in differences, which means we're only focusing on the differences. 
And what that turns into is just turning differences into statistics and making us feel like we made everything better because the percentages changed. Some people say they want differences, but what they really want is similarities. We can all be different as long as after a little while we all look the same. But God's trying to build the church where our differences don't get lost in the mix and they're also not the main, they're not my main point. The differences are an opportunity for me to strengthen you and make you better. Difference is important. We need to focus on difference. There's a place for differences. Being different is a cornerstone of a healthy relationship, but it's only one cornerstone. If we wanna build well, we've gotta have all the cornerstones. So what are the other cornerstones? Let's talk about what we share as we build relationships. We share origin. We all come from the mind of God. We share identity. We are all the image of God. We share purpose. We are all here for the plans of God. And now, when we share our differences, we all participate in the help of God. But what about when it hurts? What about the pain? What about the disappointment? There's a lot that could be said about this. There's no space to go into all of that today, but what I want to share with you and give you this morning as we think about this is that I think that there's a unique way that we share with Jesus and his sufferings when we go through the pain of relationships. Instead of just run and shut them off and decide it would just be better if I was all alone. There is something about the pain of relationships that helps us share in the sufferings of Jesus. If you look at Jesus' life, starting in John chapter 1, it talks about how he came to his own and his own people didn't receive him. Most of his family disowned him while he was still alive. All of his disciples fled when he was arrested. His best friend denied him and abandoned him when he was put on trial. He talks about Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because they rejected him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus knows what is coming and he's praying, God, if this cup could pass from me, please let there be another way. Let there be another way to purchase relationship with you. God said, there's no other way. And so Jesus embraced the pain of relationship. And on the cross, as he was nailed by those he came to save, his petition was, God, forgive them. Forgive them for they know not what they do. There were a lot of times when Jesus had to let people walk away, but he never let himself get bitter. And he always prayed for people's restoration. And he was always like the father on the porch, ready to welcome the prodigal son back home. We're all going to experience pain. We're probably all going to cause pain. Relationships take a lot of humility and a lot of grace, and that's hard. And if relationships are about me, that doesn't sound worth it. But if relationships are about imaging God to the world, then let's embrace humility, let's embrace grace, and let's show everyone what God looks like. I want you to stand as we close this morning. I'm gonna have our prayer team come on up. And I don't know how you might need to respond this morning. Like I said, this is a subject that can bring so much excitement and so much pain at the same time. But I wanna encourage you to 
come before Jesus in these moments as we respond together and just let him talk to you about you. Is there anything you need to repent of? Is there any bitterness you need to let go of? Is there any humility you need to embrace? Is there any pain you need prayer for healing? Is there any restoration you're interceding for that you sure could use a friend to stand with you? And is there anything you need in your life? Let's come and get prayer for that this morning. Maybe you need to come up. Maybe you just need to talk with whoever you came with. Whatever you do in these few moments, don't do nothing. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for these moments together. We thank you for your word. We pray that you would shape us by it as we respond to you in Jesus' name.